From Washington, D.C., the swamp itself, this is The Week's Worst with Allen and Batum. I'm Dr. Stephen J. Allen, Vice President and Chief Investigative Officer of the Capital Research Center. And I'm Matthew Vadum, Senior Vice President at Capital Research Center and Editor-in-Chief of BombThrowers.com. And I'm Kristen Eastlick, Vice President of Programs here at CRC, and I'll be moderating this podcast in which we dig through the news for stories that we think are the most outrageous, the most ridiculous, the worst. So on January 31st, President Trump announced his nomination of Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. After days of confirmation hearings in which Democrats expressed frustration over a number of elements of Judge Gorsuch's record, as long, along with frustration that Obama nominee Merrick Garland was denied hearings, Judge Gorsuch's confirmation will finally be taken to the, to the full Senate. However, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer has indicated Democrats may filibuster this vote, which would mean 60 votes would be required for confirmation. That's an unattainable amount for Republicans. If he does, this would mean Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell would need to institute the, quote, nuclear option, unquote, to confirm Gorsuch. That means removing the ability to filibuster any Supreme Court nominees, instead requiring only a simple majority for confirmation. Now, Matthew, isn't complaining about this a double standard? I mean, Republicans have spent the last year blocking Obama's nominee to the Supreme Court, Merrick Garland. Well, I guess in a way it is a double standard, but I'm totally okay with that. <laughs> uh, but let's let's. But seriously, uh, the the Democrats uh, have spent the last few decades obstructing Republican presidents when they have nominated people to the Supreme Court. They started this fight back uh, with. Um, Clarence Thomas when they turned his hearing into what he called an electronic lynching, when they brought out uh, the noted uh, uh, prevaricator Anita Hill to falsely claim that uh, she had been the victim of some kind of sexual harassment, um, at the, and she was brought out at the 11th hour in the hearings. And uh, she claimed that that when she worked for uh, Justice Thomas, when he was the chairman of the Equal Opportunity, um, uh, Equal uh, Employment Employment Opportunity Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, Mm -hmm. uh, that he, you know, did some bad things. Now, she followed him around when he got new jobs. So she had an easy escape route if things were bad. And... Uh, so her, her complaints have never been credible, although they were taken seriously at the time. My point, in summary, is that Democrats started this, and they have been fighting and using dirty tricks uh, for decades. And it is not surprising that when Antonin Scalia suddenly died under sort of mysterious circumstances that I don't think were... were uh, properly investigated, that uh, I think they, that the Republicans were perfectly within their rights to refuse to advance Merrick Garland's nomination. The Constitution does not the, uh, require the Senate to do anything with the president's nominations. The Senate is there to advise and consent. It does not. The Constitution does not command the Senate to advise and consent. Senators get to decide if they want 
to advise and consent. So, you know, from a, a real politique point of view, I think this is this is uh, predictable uh, and expected, and uh, I think uh, I think Republicans are going to uh, move forward with Gorsuch, and uh, I'm fine with what they did or in this case, didn't do with Merrick Garland. Well, and, and let, let me jump in there, because, of course, I was around for uh, some of the, uh, the earlier fights, and you really had a, 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 an unprecedented uh, situation uh, with, uh, with Robert Bork. Uh, and that was, of course, uh, he was nominated for the U.S. Supreme Court. Ted Kennedy immediately came out uh, and gave a speech that uh, talked about how if Bork were, were confirmed to the Supreme Court that you know, women would be having back alley abortions and all sorts of terrible things would happen. They began a, a smear campaign against him. And I'll just give you one example because we don't want to talk for a long time about how uh, that smear campaign worked, but I'll give you one example, and that is that Howell Heflin, who was the senator from Alabama, uh, he went, um, uh, he, he was on the Judiciary Committee, and his vote as a Southern Democrat and supposed moderate was one that really did uh, the most damage when he announced he would vote against uh, against Bork. And he went home, and, uh, you know, people in Alabama, they they heard that Bork was for uh, sticking to the Constitution, for for uh, not uh, letting criminals uh, out, of, uh, out of jail willy-nilly, and all sorts of things that they heard that were positive. So Heflin had to explain back home why he was against Bork. And what he said to the folks back home was that, well, he was against him because— uh, he had refused to answer my question about his belief in God or lack thereof, uh, and he had attended Communist Party meetings. I can do this because I'm from Alabama. Uh, he had attended, <laughs> racist. He had attended Communist Party meetings, and uh, uh, and and he had a strange lifestyle, and that's how he put it to the folks back home. And the reason I he definitely had weird facial hair. Yeah, well, that's the thing. He had a beard, and people told him, "Oh, you need to shave that beard." And, and the Democrats actually used he the beard. He should have. It wasn't a very nice beard. Yeah, I know it made him look like too much weak. of an intellectual or something. And the Democrats didn't like that. But here's the thing: Heflin gave completely different reasons in Washington compared to folks back home. Right. And I was the per- person who found the tape of him making those comments. That's why I ex- oh. talked about his uh, language. Uh, and I gave Is that, that when you worked for se- uh, Senator Jeremiah? That, that was afterwards. I was, a journalist. I was a journalist at this point. And I gave that to uh, Bob Bork Jr., uh, who uh, then presumably passed it along because the next week it appeared in George Will's syndicated column that Heflin Dunley gave two completely different sets of reasons. Uh, one in Washington where he was concerned about his uh, uh, constitutional issues, and then back home it was this nonsense about uh, whether he believed in God and all these sort of things that uh, were just kind of made up. It's uh, so 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 that's the kind of smear. And then I was around for Clarence Thomas. When my liberal friends, I was having dinner with them during the week of the Thomas hearings, and, and, and they actually relayed to me that there was a million-dollar reward for anyone who would come up with a, with a information, as they put it, I would say a smear, right. information that would derail the Thomas right. nomination. And then at the end of that very week was when Anita Hill suddenly showed up with her story, which was never verified, made no sense when you looked at it, and yet uh, was almost used in that case to keep him from getting on the Supreme Court. Well, so, it almost succeeded. Yeah, yeah. Right. But, Matthew, won't Republicans regret going down this nuclear option uh, when Democrats are back in power? Uh, this sort of got started under Harry Reid, and I, I've heard a few Democrats are upset that uh, this— package was unwrapped back under their watch and now they wish they could take it back 
yeah, they probably will at some point, but who cares? <laughs> the stakes are too high right now. We have a 4-4 split in the Supreme Court. A bad justice could eviscerate the Second Amendment, could take away our gun rights. Uh, and there are so many important issues that right now are, are in the balance that uh, it, it, it's worth it to put some skin in the game, to take a risk. And... Uh, you know, remember that the filibuster is not in the Constitution. It's not referred to at all. It's mm -hmm. an invention. It's a it's a procedure. It's a rule invented um, uh, by lawmakers, and it has been changed before, and uh, it can be changed again. This wouldn't, by the way, this wouldn't get rid of the filibuster. It would simply limit its use further. So that uh, right now the current uh, the status quo is that it can't be used. Uh, you can't filibuster um, uh, the nominees below the level of Supreme Court, and right. then it would just remove the ability to filibuster nominees to the Supreme Court. By the way, this will be only the second Supreme Court justice to ever be filibustered. The first, as I discovered in my research, because I think I was in diapers at the time. Abe Fortas was mm -hmm. uh, was filibustered because uh, he was uh, ethically very slippery, and he used to hang out with President Lyndon Johnson at the White House while he was an associate justice of the Supreme Court, and talk politics and plot, you know, how to move the agenda of uh, Johnson uh, forward. He also had some other uh, ethical problems, and uh, he was successfully filibustered, and then after President Lyndon Johnson left uh, office in January 1969, a few months later, uh, uh, he resigned for, from the court. Mm -hmm. And uh, so now Fortas is just a little uh, footnote in, uh, in history, having only served something like five years on the court. Right. So filibustering um, Supreme Court nominees isn't new, but it's extraordinarily rare and the only reason that the Democrats are doing it, uh, they don't have any any substantive objections to um, to Neil Gorsuch, uh, who is currently already a federal judge. They just don't like the fact that he's a conservative, that he is an originalist, that he takes the text of the Constitution seriously, just as the man he would replace, Antonin Scalia. Uh, did in his time on the high court. Well, the, th the thing that, that, that people have to understand to put this in context is that, uh, and you mentioned Abe Fortas, uh, you know, election year uh, nominations generally don't go through. There's been one case before of an election year nomination going through, and that's where the vacancy, I think, had been 18 months at that point. So people were like ready to get the thing filled. In this case, uh, Scalia, um, uh, uh, God rest his soul, and he essentially drops dead. Uh, suddenly, you've got this vacancy. Uh, it's uh, four to four on the Supreme Court, otherwise between the radical and the mainstream factions, and uh, the uh, and and so this decides the balance. Uh, and so, of course, Republicans would not proceed with Garland at that point. And the Democrats, you know, they were. I mean, they complained, and of course, now in retrospect, they're complaining. But at the time, they were, eh, you know, they, they were kind of okay with it because they expected that the 
nomination would be decided by the Supreme, by the uh, presidential election uh, because Republicans were saying, why not? Why don't we let the American people decide who they want to fill that seat by electing a presidential candidate who will then appoint someone to the Supreme Court? And the Democrats were, eh, you know, Hillary, Hillary, obviously Hillary's going to win. Uh, so then we'll get our five. I mean, they wanted it right away, but they didn't complain all that much. Right. They mainly now are upset in retrospect because, of course, that was their chance to get that fifth seat. I, I should clarify one little thing, just because some listeners to our podcast may be a little confused at this point. Abe Fortas was already on the Supreme Court. Lyndon Johnson nominated him, this is where he ran into trouble, to be elevated to the chief justice slot. And that was that was the problem. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. Um, and, and I think in our discussions previously, Dr. Allen, uh, we have we've talked about how the the this extreme uh, partisan um, uh, politicization of the uh, of the Supreme Court nomination process is is fairly recent and a fairly recent development in American history. It never happened in the fifties. You know, Earl Warren sailed through. And, and yet he did many terrible things. Well, Earl Warren, people don't realize, but Earl Warren was a Republican governor of California. This was in the 50s. And actually was uh, Dewey's running mate for, uh, he would have been vice president of the United States. And then he helped deliver uh, the Republican nomination in 1952 to uh, Dwight Eisenhower over Robert Taft, who was uh, the front runner for most of the campaign. And, uh, and part of the deal was that he would get the next uh, Supreme Court vacancy uh, and then it turned out the next Supreme Court vacancy was the chief justiceship. And, and I, there's a story that Eisenhower tried to say, well, now, when I said the next vacancy, I didn't mean chief justice. And Earl Warren said, hey, we cut a deal. Uh, I'm going to get it. And that's how people treated Supreme Court nominations. There were occasionally things about policy. Uh, and obviously the big deal, like would you support the New Deal or, or, or not support the New Deal, which many people considered unconstitutional. But um, for most of my, uh, I guess, childhood and, and uh, you know, the Supreme Court nominations were not these big ideological uh, gunfights uh, that they are today. And, uh, and then they went from being ideological to being totally uh, matters of uh, smearing people uh, and things like that. I guess the Gorsuch thing, at least now, nobody... I haven't heard anybody yet um, smearing him personally. It's all right. been, you know, that he's that right winger. Well, well, and in the early days of the Republic, people practically had to be tricked uh, <laughs> into serving on the Supreme Court. Yeah. Many justices uh, viewed it as uh, as a backwater and uh, lost interest and resigned after after serving on the bench for just a few years. And, and even in the 40s and the 50s. late 1700s, early 1800s. 40s and 50s, you'd have somebody resign from the Supreme Court to run the... Uh, uh, the war resources uh, on the home front during World War II. Somebody in the uh, Goldberg in the fifties uh, resigned to run for governor of New York. So uh, the Supreme Court was not the big deal that it is today. And that ends the history lesson, I suspect. <laughs> and it's good, good transition. Uh, now going going back to today, um, and keying off of a few of the things that you guys mentioned. Um, one of the things that is being used against uh, Gorsuch is that he's, uh, quote, not in the mainstream, or that's that's according to um, those like Senate Minority Leader Schumer. Um, you know, if, if that's true, which we can talk about, you know, why should we confirm a, a radical fringe legal thinker? Well, Kristen, I think I'd have to take issue with the premise of the question. I don't think that uh, Judge Neil Gorsuch is a radical fringe legal thinker. He is 
uh, very much an originalist. He takes the Constitution and the text of it, the wording of it, very seriously, just as Antonin Scalia, the man he would replace on the uh, bench of, uh, of America's highest court, takes it very seriously. Um, the, the reason that um, the Democrats are going crazy over his nomination is because the Supreme Court is split for four um, uh, liberals versus conservatives, roughly speaking, because Anthony Kennedy is, kind of, well, Anthony Kennedy is Anthony Kennedy. That's a, he, we could talk about him for a whole different podcast. Um, but basically four to four and the stakes are so high. It would just take one ruling to, to drastically curtail Americans' uh, gun ownership rights, to eviscerate the Second Amendment, and to do all sorts of other uh, damage, all sorts of other mischief to the Constitution of the United States. The Democrats are having aneurysms daily. They are apoplectic, filled with, with, with rage. They're frothing at the mouth because Hillary Clinton, in their view, had the election stolen from her by Russians or Martians or by um, Rock'em Sock'em sets or, or uh, I don't know, the, 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 the puppets from The Muppet Show. <laughs> you know, they, they are just, they're just in another, in another world right now. Uh, they have this sort of mass psychosis and they refuse to accept President Trump as legitimate president and they say that uh, he shouldn't get to fill a seat that was stolen, in their words, from the Democrats because and, and, the Republicans refused to, refused to advance Merrick Garland's nomination on, uh, last year under President Obama. And remember, as late as, uh, you know, 9, 9.30 on election night, uh, they saw a clear path forward. They were going to have five seats on the Supreme Court. Uh, you have a situation on the left that's different from what it is on the conservative or the mainstream side, which is that the conservatives and mainstreamers, they tend to listen to each argument. Occasionally, they'll break away from the others. It doesn't happen on the left. So even someone like uh, Justice Breyer, who you would think, based on his background, the things that happened before he uh, was a Supreme Court justice uh, that he had said and positions he had taken, uh, that uh, he might be more of a moderate. But that doesn't work out that way. Um, the Democrats make sure that they only appoint people who will be in lockstep. Uh, they will vote together almost all the time. And uh, so you you had the prospect on, uh, until uh, on election night that Hillary was going to fill that fifth seat, that then anything the Democrats do, anything President Hillary Clinton did, would be approved by the Supreme Court, would go straight through. Uh, there would be no blocking it. Uh, and imagine having that just sort of taken away from you there in a period of uh, an hour, hour and a half as the elections, uh, election returns started to turn on them. Uh, and uh, so the bitterness uh, and the thought of the lost opportunity, uh, the anger, it, you're exactly right, is so great yeah. that they felt like they had to do something to placate their constituencies about Garland. Now, both of you have alluded to this, but uh, can you, Steve, elaborate on the differences between the conservative uh, side of, of the Supreme Court and the liberal judges? What what's what's the big spectrum right now? Yeah, it's it's it's, it's kind of simple, and and the left does a lot to 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 confuse the issue. Um, imagine that you had a, a contract. You sat down and worked out a contract with a, an employer. 
and uh, was you were going to work 40 hours a week and you were going to make, um, you know, $1,000 a week. And uh, so you get paid in return for your work. Uh, and then the employer came back later and said, you know, this, this contract, it's a living agreement. And, uh, you know, living agreements aren't meant to be taken literally. So I'm going to pay you half as much money for doing twice as much work. You'd be rightly outraged because that's not what you agreed to. Well, the people who are originalists, as the, as the term is used, um, in interpreting the Constitution and the statutory law, they just uh, believe that it means what it says. Now, words change meaning over time. An example is the word militia. People took that in the Second Amendment to mean that uh, only the National Guard had the rights to uh, the right to keep and bear arms. That was ridiculous, of course, because that sense of the word militia didn't exist for more than a hundred years after that constitutional amendment uh, uh, protecting the right to bear arms was uh, was written. So well, it couldn't at the mean time that. of the Second Amendment, the militia, correct me if I'm wrong, just meant the whole body of the people functioning as a self-policing society because. In the 1780s, there were no regular police forces in the United States. Police forces are uh, basically weren't even invented until, I think, after the War of 1812, and it started in, in Britain, if memory serves, from undergrad days. Yeah, so exactly every, right. So everybody was a police officer and, as such, had a right to, to, to bear arms, to, uh, to protect himself and his family and property, and uh, and and to uh, maintain uh, law and order uh, in the community. Right. And my my point Do is. Do I have it about right? You Dr. have it Allen? right. And my point is that many many words change meaning over hundreds of years. And so the only thing you would do, you know, people talk about, well, you're going back to what uh, people believed back in the 18th century or the 19th century. The only thing you're looking at is what did the words mean at the time uh, that were written down, because that's the contract. And originalism doesn't mean you go back to uh, when we were a, a society where owning slaves was tolerated and women didn't have uh, opportunity, you know, didn't have the vote. No, it means you look at each part of the Constitution as it was uh, written by the people who wrote it. So, for example, the Civil War amendments that uh, abolished slavery uh, gave, uh, or at least were intended to give equal rights to the former slaves uh, that gave uh, them the vote, uh, you would interpret it as, say, Frederick Douglass, uh, one of the uh, people who was involved in putting that language together in the Constitution. What did he mean uh, by, the, by the terminology? You don't go back to what the slave owners meant. You go back to what the abolitionists meant. And the same thing with uh, the amendment giving women the right to vote. Well, what, would, what did the suffragists uh, think that language meant? And so on. So you're simply saying that when the Constitution says you can amend the Constitution, you can do things that's happened many times to bring it up to date. The way you do it is by constitutional amendment. Uh, for which procedures are provided, not by having judges suddenly decide that they want to change the meaning of terms uh, to uh, uh, twisting the language and uh, turning the Constitution into a thing of wax, as uh, was the terminology used uh, in, the, uh, in, in the debates over the uh, Constitution in the Supreme Court. Uh, you don't want people who can just make it up as they go along. And that's what the left essentially does. Well... If we're looking at originalist interpretations, doesn't that mandate Congress having a hearing for Judge Garland? No, there's nothing. I mean, the Supreme Court, the, the Constitution just says that the president makes the appointment with the uh, advice and consent of the Senate. 
so uh, technically, I guess you could you could say uh, that uh, you know whether the Senate consents, and that's totally up to the Senate. Uh, you know, you can't say they must consent. If they must consent, it's not consent. It's mm-hmm. being forced to do it. So sure. that has nothing to do with it. Sure. And, and let me say this about you know one of the things that's amazing about the lefty interpretation of the Constitution. Uh, Justice Souter, who was, of course, a Republican appointee, but he turned out to be a, a lefty on the court, uh, he, um, or at least most of the time, he uh, gave a speech at, uh, at Harvard, for which he got a standing ovation. Uh, he was praised in no fewer than uh, four op-eds in the Washington Post, because what he said was, well, you know, you have to have a living Constitution, because you, it's, the, it's the change in people's attitudes that changes the Constitution, uh, the, what they call the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times. Uh, and just, so Plessy versus Ferguson, which allowed segregation, legal segregation, yeah. would never been changed into Brown versus Board of Education, which eliminated that in, in public schools, uh, without that change in the spirit of the times. Uh, and so therefore, uh, we wanted, because we believe that Brown versus Board of Education was a good decision, we were for a living constitution. Now, of course, that logic is completely backwards, because what he's saying is, if if Brown versus Board of Education was correctly decided because the spirit of the times had changed, and not because that's what the Constitution said, as as the truth is, in my view, uh, then therefore, Plagueis Plessy, which allowed segregation, well, that was the spirit of the times, too. Yep. The, uh, be- the better argument is that Plessy v. Ferguson, which was the separate but equal ruling right. arising out of some kind of a raise... Uh, labor dispute, uh, a, uh, uh, a person who worked uh, uh, for a railroad, mm-hmm. uh, that was separate but equal. So, you know, you, it, it mandated that you could have um, schools for whites and schools for blacks. But in practice, the schools for blacks were always worse, far worse than the schools for whites. The better argument here uh, is the more consistent way of looking at it is simply to say, as Steve was alluding to, that Plessy v. Ferguson was wrongly decided in the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and if, so if and you that use, way the Constitution's not living. If you use the the the, the logic of the liberals who uh, in their constitutional interpretation. What they're saying is that Plessy was rightly decided, and it wasn't rightly decided. Right, uh, nor was Dred Scott versus Sanford. But, but but believe me, the Washington establishment and the people <laughs> in journalism who applauded David Souter, they don't really think that's true. <laughs> yeah, the Constitution is just a plaything to the left. Uh, they shape it into whatever whatever they feel like on that particular day. To, to, to boil it down, if something is good, it's constitutional. If something is bad, it's not. Well, we've agreed that Gorsuch's appointment is is very important uh, to both sides for various reasons. And we definitely see that in the amount of advertising going on on the airwaves uh, about whether to have senators vote for him or against him. Uh, There's a lot of advertising out there that has been funded by groups that we don't know the source of, that everyone, you know, we we can call it dark money, and I think that we wouldn't be wrong in that. Um, Interestingly, Senator Whitehouse uh, from Rhode Island actually attacked Judge Gorsuch for uh, the fact that others have been wanting to, to nominate him and have been spending money to do so during his confirmation hearing. How do you think uh, Gorsuch is going to rule on money in politics when he's benefited from a lot of that spending, assuming he gets on the court? And isn't this unfair is what the left is arguing. 
Well, of course, he's been attacked by all this stuff. So, you know, you would think if he were uh, trying to represent some point of view based on his own personal experience, uh, that he would be for restricting this money. But um, my my expectation is, and I could be proven wrong, uh, you know, people have uh, sometimes not lived up to their expect uh, the expectations you've had of them uh, regarding how they perform on the Supreme Court. But in his case, I think probably uh, it, we know where he's going. He's probably going to rule the way Scalia would have done. And the, the conservative position or the libertarian position or the mainstream position uh, is that in the Constitution where it says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, that no law actually, I, I know this is hard hard to swallow, that no law means no law. Uh, because <laughs> you, that's you what, sound like a total crackpot. Oh, I, actually, I brought this up at at uh, at at learned panels uh, in Washington where they would be talking about all the ways you could restrict freedom of speech, and then I would bring this up, and they would look at me like I was some sort of strange person from another planet, suggesting that where it says no law, it means no law. Um, the the fact is that under the Constitution. Uh, you can't have restrictions on free speech. You can't have restrictions on freedom of the press. Uh, and the interesting thing is that, that some of the same people who are whining now that Donald Trump is a threat to freedom of, of the press because he, uh, you know, criticizes members of the press or won't keep, you know, let's uh, one of them get kicked off the press plane for five minutes. Uh, those same people supported Hillary Clinton who went around campaigning, promising that she would only appoint to the Supreme Court people who would uh, be in favor of uh, of restricting freedom of speech. And she would give the very specific example, because it's the Citizens United case, uh, that she would talk about. And she would even say, that's when they made a movie about me. So you had a presidential candidate who was campaigning to be elected on the promise that she would make it illegal to make a movie criticizing herself, and this was seen as okay by the same people who freak out over Donald Trump's threat to the First Amendment. And another point on the dark money uh, issue, uh, dark money has been funding attack ads on TV, criticizing the Gorsuch nomination, and similarly have been supporting uh, the Gorsuch, the Neil Gorsuch nomination. So, uh, you know, why does Senator Sheldon Whitehouse uh, think dark money is bad if it's pro-Gorsuch, but... He ignores it if it's anti-Gorsuch. Well, dark money. So it's just, that, just this is the you know the rank hypocrisy uh, that uh, prevails in the swamp that is Washington D.C. <laughs> well, dark dark money financed the civil rights movement. So I'd like to ask Senator Whitehouse if he was if he thought the civil rights movement was a bad idea. In fact, there was a 1958 Supreme Court case about whether the state of Alabama uh, could force the NAACP to give up its uh, donors uh, because, of course, the whole point was if you if the NAACP had to give up its donors, a lot of people would have their, you know, their windows smashed in. Maybe they would be shot or dragged off and off and left in a landfill. And that's what uh, people wanted the NAACP to have to be forced to give up its donors. So that kind of thing could be done to stop the civil rights movement. Would, would that be Alabama versus NAACP XREL Patterson? That doc, would be that Dr. Case, Allen? Fact, yes. And, wow. uh, you know, so I'm so, surprised. I remember that. Yeah. You know, we talk about double standards. Look, the, the fact is that on any kind of procedural argument, 
people always pick the side that is going to cause their side to win. You know, if you're, if your team uh, wins uh, uh, on a controversial ruling in a, in a sports game, uh, well, gosh, uh, you know, you're going to be for whatever ruling would have made your team win. That's just human nature. And, the, and people do it on both sides. Of course, there's a double standard on double standards. Uh, <laughs> so often Republicans will get called, well, you're inconsistent on this. Yes, but the other side, they flip too. They just flip the other way. Uh, and so, uh, you know, most of those are, are not really uh, worth arguing about. The, the, the significant part with regard to the changing the rules possibly to get Gorsuch through is if the Democrats try to filibuster, uh, then the Republicans are going to put him through. So uh, you're going to have potentially the loss of the power to do it in the future, and that's what the Democrats have to consider. Are, are they willing to give up any credibility uh, in terms of being able to filibuster or otherwise stop a Supreme Court nominee if maybe there's a conservative but not as highly qualified as Gorsuch? And I, there is the a time. very sophisticated underlying uh, rationale for all of this, uh, and that is the we won, you lost <laughs> argument. Right. That's basically <laughs> what it is, is brute force. You vote. We got more votes. You don't. To hell with you. Yeah. And that's the way it's always worked. And that's okay. Yeah. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for all of those insights. I think that's our show for this week. We'll be back next week and hope you'll join us. Uh, if you're not already, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. And follow us on social media at Capital Research Center on Facebook and YouTube. And at Capital Research on Twitter. I'm Dr. Stephen J. Allen. And I'm Matthew Vadum. And I'm Kristen Eastlick. Thanks for listening. <laughs>